This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, uh, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Uh, more importantly, today I have uh, the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Sluber, who's Associate Professor at Western Washington University. Um, we'll be speaking about a fascist, uh, sorry, a fascinating work. It's so fascinating. I'm tongue-tied introducing it. A fascinating uh, work about a fascinating work. Um, uh, his book is called Early Tantric Medicine, Snakebite mantras and healing in the Garuda Tantras. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So um, there certainly is a backstory in terms of how this book came about. Um, maybe tell us the primary object of the book and, 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 and the discovery you made that allowed this book to be possible. Sure. Um, yeah, I'll yeah, first say a little bit about what the book is about, and then I'll tell you the longest story about how it came to be. Um, but yeah, it's like the the title suggests. This is a book about uh, an early early medieval medical system uh, that's rooted in tantric rituals and mantras and some herbal medicine. Um, and I'm specifically looking at uh, the medicine for snake bite. And within that, you know, rather specific topic, I'm looking at uh, the use of mantras to heal snake bite. So. Um, it's kind of an interesting mix because uh, a lot of people have studied history of medicine and a lot of people have studied history of religion, but this, this combines them in, a, in an interesting way that, um, you know, people in one of those areas or the other didn't really come to, to this, this topic. Um, so let's see. Yeah. I mean, snakebite may sound like this really obscure sort of thing. And I've even had people in India when I'm, you know, going there to give talks, they're like, you know, you know, snakebite, really, that sounds very colonial, like you're exoticizing India by saying, you know, we have all these snake bites. But, you know, actually, the, the data is, is, is there to show that there's a lot of snake bites happening in India, um, more than any other place in the world, um, you know, even other countries combined. Um, and about 45,000 to 50,000 uh, people dying every year from, from snake bite. You know, now in the context of, of India, this place with, uh, you know, almost a billion and a half people, uh, 50,000 people dying of snake bite is, is nothing. Uh, and, and yet it's still a lot of people. It's still, it, you know, there's, there's more to it than just the people that are dying. There's people that are permanently disabled. So it really is... Um, an important topic in some sense, um, and, and it has been an, an, an interest of the culture uh, for literally thousands of years. So that's kind of the, the gist of the book. Um, so let's see, how did I come to it? Yeah, do you want the short version or the long version? Well, for me, it's always a scenic route, um, but whatever, you know, you've stumbled upon something in your research that is very important. And so I think folks would enjoy the story of how that came about. Okay, sure. So, um, you know, it really was about 10 years of my life actively working on this, you know, and that wasn't the only thing that I was doing in those 10 years, but but it was like my main focus. Um, but, but then when I reflect on this, I, I think there was another decade before that that really was, was leading up to it. So I'm going to start in middle school. 
which seems kind of silly. Um, I've never like told the public this. this uh, Michael. Yes. I studied the Puranas. So there's a backstory to the backstory to the backstory. So by all means, let's start in middle school. <laughs> okay. So I was into like magic, ma performing magic tricks, um, you know, doing, doing a coin, making a coin disappear, making a dollar bill float in the air, you know, these sorts of illusions. Um, and, you know, this was just a hobby, but from there, you know, I hear about these people that claim to be practicing real magic. So um, I started studying this, you know, and I'm, I'm not studying it in some kind of um, naive way. Like I, I've been skeptical about magic all the way through. And I mean, maybe that partly starts with me starting as a performer, you know, doing this as, as something that I know that there's a trick behind it. And yet at the same time, I'm, I'm, I became sympathetic to these claims for real magic. And so I think that this led me in a very circuitous way to this study of, of religious medicine, which we could call magic. I mean, this is a big complex topic that scholars love to debate, like, you know, is magic an appropriate word to use? Um, but I can't help but use it because there's so many similarities between things that we call magic, like spells and, you know, supernatural actions that can't be explained by natural laws and these sorts of things, and the way that some of the tantric medicine is thought to work. So there's that connection. Um, yeah, I mean, so from there, you know, as, as a young teenager, I, you know, I, I started studying other traditions of magic. I started studying Western esotericism. Very frequently, those traditions would be referring to India um, and referring to Tantra. So I, that was sort of on my radar. Um, I also was, was interested in uh, Native American healing traditions and shamanism. And I apprenticed with several um, different Native American shamans. Uh, learned healing techniques from them. I became a massage therapist at one point when I was about 18 years old um, and practiced on people and used visualization techniques. And, you know, at this point, okay, Tantra was sort of on my radar, but I really didn't know what it was. And so it's startling to me once I, I get into the research for this book about a decade ago, that, um, or more than that now, uh, that how similar some of the techniques that the tantric doctors were using to heal people were to these visualization techniques from, from the Americas. So um, all of this kind of sets, sets the stage for me that it made me sympathetic to the worldview uh, promoted by these early medieval texts. Um, and I wanna just you know, reemphasize sympathetic doesn't mean that I believed it all, okay? Like, um, you know, as I said, I've been skeptical the whole way through. Um, but I don't think that it's like an either or thing. You don't either believe in it or disbelieve it. I think that one can be curious about something, even if one doesn't accept it as, as the whole truth. I think that there's, you know, truth is multi-layered. And so that's the kind of perspective that, that led me to this, uh, this topic. When I was an undergraduate, um, oh, sorry. No, that's fine. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I was, I was interested in Tantra. You know, I heard more about it in my academic classes, and I read some of David Gordon White's books. Um, but I kind of set it aside because I was, I was pretty set on going to UC Berkeley and working with the Goldmans. Uh, they specialize in mythology and, you know, psych psychoanalytic studies and gender studies. And all of this was, was things that I was genuinely interested in. So I just kind of set Tantra to the side. Um, and I planned on working on gender in the Mahabharata, you know, analyzing myths and, and, and stories, uh, especially with regard to gender. So all of this shifted, like it pivoted 180 degrees uh, back to Tantra because the very first year that I started graduate school, and I had been there for a couple of years as an undergraduate um, studying Sanskrit, uh, but the very first year in graduate school, um, the Goldmans were on sabbatical in India, and so uh, the replacement Sanskrit teacher was Somdev Vasudeva, who is a specialist in Tantra. And so, um, you know, he had he he gave us courses in reading manuscripts, and this was also something that was just super fascinating to me. This this idea that one can make a living by reading old manuscripts and sort of like unearthing new knowledge was just uh, you know what were really motivated me in, in the study of Sanskrit. And so 
um, yeah, this this just sort of set me off in a in a different direction and back in this this direction of, of Sanskrit. So um, yeah, in the course of that first semester, I, I came to Somdev uh, and I showed him a list of manuscripts I was thinking about ordering from Nepal, ordering copies of. Uh, they have it all. They have like tens of thousands of manuscripts on microfilm there. And he saw the the one that I ended up working on, uh, Kriya Kalagrunotra. And he said immediately, you know, order all the manuscripts of that one because he knew that that, that text had been referred to uh, in the 11th century uh, in, a, in a commentary on the Natra Tantra. Um, Professor Alexis Sanderson, who was Somde Vasudeva's teacher at Oxford, um, had had recognized that text as something important. So it's demonstrably early and it's inherently interesting. So I decided to, to work on that. And so that was the start of the, the 10 years of working on it in, in earnest. And so um, how do you come across the Garuda Tantras? Yeah, so I mean, that was basically just that text. Um, I didn't know what the Karuda Tantras were, um, but you know, because of Somdev's really enthusiastic recommendation, I ordered those manuscripts and I started reading them. You know, I started transcribing one of them to start with and uh, reading them and trying to make sense of them. Uh, that text also has a great deal of material on the Bhuta Tantras, which is uh, something that I'm working on now as, as a separate project. Um, but I decided to focus on the Garuda Tantra stuff, be, probably because of the similarities that I saw with my previous interest in shamanism and, and healing techniques from the Americas. Um, so that's that's kind of how I went in that direction of the Garuda Tantras. Um, it's also just like, you know, people think of Garuda, they, they hear that name and they think, you know, kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Garuda is the Mount of Vishnu and like, you know, there's not much more to be said about it. People, you know, people consider him a, a minor god. Um, but I found that like none of that applies to these texts. And actually it doesn't apply very well to most of what I encountered when I was surveying thousands of years of Sanskrit literature. Um, in the Vaishnava context, certainly, uh, Garuda is the Mount of Vishnu and, you know, he's Vishnu's primary devotee and all of that. But there's all these other texts, the, the Shaiva, Shaiva Tantras, the Puranas, uh, even way back in the Veda, Garuda is seen as this independent deity. Um, this flows over into other traditions, uh, you know, in, in Buddhism and Jainism, Garuda shows up and um, is, is basically an independent deity or he's presented as, as a devotee of the Buddha, for example. Um, so, all of this was mysterious to me and, uh, you know, intriguing just because it was it sort of flew in the face of conventional wisdom about about this, uh, this God. Surely we see um, it's not uncommon to see a folding in um, um, uh, a Vaishnavization or a Shaivization, if those are words of various figures such as Garuda or even Ganesha or et cetera, et cetera. So in the text that you're studying, uh, who is Garuda? Yeah, well, Garuda is basically the same as Shiva and Bhairava. Um, so actually, I can read you a passage to go with that question because um, it's it's describing what the practitioner will do in a particular ritual. Uh, let me find it here. Yeah, so one does all this preparation. I mean, there's there's a lot <laughs> a lot of background that I could explain about this, but but basically one is doing a whole lot of preparation, working with these mantras, um, working with tantric visualizations, um, and then at, at one point of the ritual, it's as part of the preparation to actually heal a case of snake bite, um, according to the tradition. Um, it, it picks up here where one is visualizing oneself as either Bhairava or Garuda. Um, and it sort of blends them like there's not really much of a difference. So I'll just read a, a page here from the book. Uh, the stage of the ritual, this stage of the ritual marks the transition between preparation and application. One visualizes oneself as Shiva in his frightening 10-armed Bhairava form, pervading the entire universe with a fierce and penetrating fire. Next comes a crucial verse, and I quote, at the time of the ritual, always visualize yourself as Bhairava to destroy demons, or indeed as the terribly powerful Tarksha, which is another name of Garuda, to destroy snakes. So 
it's almost as if there's there's these two faces that Shiva has, Bhairava and, and Garuda, and the practitioner identifies with one or the other depending on what they want to do. So if, if they're working as an exorcist, then they identify as, as Bhairava in order to have authority over spirits. Whereas if they're treating uh, poisons, then that's Garuda's domain. And so um, one identifies with him in that way. Uh, da, 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 visualize. So this is a visualization then that the practitioner is doing. Visualize your feet in the nether regions and wings pervading the directions. The seven worlds are on your chest with Brahmanda reaching your throat. So that's like the entire known universe up, up to the throat. Uh, visualize your head extending beyond that as beginning with the Rudra Tattva and ending with the Isha Tattva, these, these higher realms of reality. Uh, Sadashiva and the three Shaktis stand on the crest of your head. The best sadhaka or tantric practitioner visualizes Tarksha as manifest, as both transcendent and imminent, pervading the worlds with three eyes, dreadful appearance, destroying poison and snakes, devouring nagas, and with a terrifying mouth as an embodiment of the Garuda mantra and blazing like the fire of time. So here Garuda is no mere king of birds or vehicle for another god. He's coterminous with the highest reaches of the universe itself. One even gets the sense that he transcends Bhairava's function because of the chapter ends with the statement that snakes as well as various kinds of demonic beings flee on sight of such a man possessed by Garuda. Has he taken over Bhairava's role too? But perhaps this isn't an issue because Garuda and Bhairava were conceived as one and the same being. So that's, you know, that's, that's my answer to who is Garuda in this context, that he really is the highest principle of the divine, uh, but taking a particular face. Mm. Um, got a number of questions. Um, actually, I will, I was going to say this to later, but I can't resist. Have you come across any living tradition surrounding this text or this thought? Yes, but I haven't, uh, I haven't had the opportunity to do field work. So originally planning this project, I wanted to do a whole year of field work. I applied for the Fulbright Hayes dissertation fellowship. This was in 2010 or 11. And this was the year that the United States canceled the Fulbright Hayes uh, program because we were spending too much money bombing Libya. So I didn't get to get funded to go to do field work. So the living tradition that I've that I've come across is all just you know through what other people have told me or finding uh, references to it on the internet. Um, so one of the one of the traditional systems of snakebite medicine that is still somewhat alive, a living tradition, is in Kerala, and they call it Vishavaidya there. Um, partly based on Ayurvedic text, uh, but also partly based on tantric traditions. Um, the, the mantra system of it and the visualiz these tantric visualizations had to go underground uh, during colonialism because the, the royals were educated abroad and they were kind of scientifically minded and they didn't have much uh, tolerance for religious healing. And so this basically gets excised from the text in Kerala, the Malayalam text of the Vishavaja tradition. Um, but you know, various people have told me, uh, pieced together that, that you know, some in manuscript form, these texts that have the mantra portions of, of, of the snake bite medicine uh, do still survive. Um, most people won't admit to practicing with mantras. You know, I think there's, there's a concern about legal liability uh, for, for one. Uh, so most of the practitioners there will only use herbal remedies, or at least this is what they say. Um, I do get the impression that that mantras are still used, but you know, silently and not overtly, and they they would be paired with uh, with herbal remedies. Okay, perhaps talk about this at some point, but I can confirm for you that mantras are certainly used in healing paradigms, whether people are classically trained or their vaidyas. But uh, uh, I can confirm for you that there are a number of. Um, um, health practitioners, uh, indigenous health practitioners, who uh, adopt these techniques in a covert manner. So I think mm. your suspicion, I know, in fact, your suspicion is bang on. Um, uh, enough about that. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and there's, there's traditions all over South Asia, too. So I lived in Nepal for a year and, um, you know, I got a little bit acquainted with the shamanism there and some of the, the oral text and the mantras that were shared with me um, are seem to be related in some distant way to the Garuda Tantras, like, you know, certain structures of the mantras and they're calling on Garuda and identifying him with with Shiva. And so there's there seems to be a connection there in that living shamanic tradition in Nepal as well. So yeah, South Asia is so huge. Um, there's, there's things going on all over the place that it's, it's hard to know everything. Mm, indeed. Absolutely. Tell us a bit about how the book is structured. Sure. So there's two main parts. Um, that's like the, the most overt structure. Um, the first part is in English, you know, sort of the book part of it, uh, seven chapters plus a short conclusion. Um, giving an overview of the history. Um, you know, the introduction starts with sort of my approach to the topic and some of the methodological concerns. We can, we can circle back to that later. Um, second chapter, I'm looking at uh, the early history. So Veda, um, early Pali Canon, the epics, uh, references to Garuda, references to healing snake bite with mantras. Uh, because that's the the main interest, but also you know herbal medicine uh, is is in there too. Um, and then the third chapter gets into the proto tantric and the tantric material, um, which really starts around six seven hundred CE. So it's it's fairly early. It's pretty. It, we we get references to it in the earliest tantras um, of Shaivism, and we we get references to it in text of of a similar date. So. Um, a lot of those original sources are lost. So, um, you know, this is something I have to keep sort of referring to throughout the book is I'm using these sources from several centuries later, uh, but we know from references that, that the Garuda Tantras and the Buddha Tantras were a thing. They were fairly influential, um, even from the, the, the seventh century or, or so. Um, so I sort of review what we know about about that. Um, you know, there's there's a few sources from these earliest canonical lists that survive, um, and then I go into chapter four is on the Vipati mantra in particular. And so this is the chapter of the book that I'm most proud of because it's based on the study of manuscripts. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to think how to how to describe all this without getting too out of order. But yeah, the latter half of the book um, is, is just the addition and translation of the text. And that makes up a little more than half, actually. Um, and so this chapter four is most closely based on that textual work. And so I feel like it's the most original thing that the book offers. And it was also the most difficult because the text, you know, reaches us in these manuscripts, never been edited before, um, you know, in, in a modern context, it's never been printed uh, and so the manuscripts have errors. There's various places where the manuscripts disagree about what words the text is supposed to say. And so it's just this really difficult, really time-consuming process to sort out um, what this system was about. And so this, I, I feel like this chapter on the, the Vipati Mantra, these five syllables of Garuda, is the heart of the book in that sense that I, I put the most work into that section. and. Um, it really, I, th I think that that mantra in particular is what made the Garuda Tantras popular. I mean, there, there's other mantras that go along with it. You know, there's there's dozens of them, or even even more. Uh, but but that mantra and some of the features of it uh, was was so compelling that I think that this really sealed the popularity of the Garuda Tantras for the next thousand years um, and, and on down to the present. So. Yeah, I could get into specifics, but maybe I'll have to, I'll circle back so I can kind of finish telling you the, the overview. Um, so the next chapter is uh, on some different mantra systems. One principal one is called Nilakanta. And so, you know, this is based on visualizing a form of Shiva and similar rituals as, as for the, the Vipati system. And then a chapter on snakebite goddesses. And um, yeah, I was already on the podcast earlier talking about uh, my more recent book uh, that involves some translations about goddess narratives. So um, that that was started in this early tantric medicine research. Um, 
Tuarita is one of them, and there's there's several others, Curucula and Berunda and Suvarnareka. So um, very interesting, previously little known um, goddesses that that these these sources inform us about. And then I have a chapter called Impact, where I just survey, you know, sort of post-classical um, Tantra period, the, the impacts that the Garuda Tantras seem to have had on Ayurvedic medicine, on, uh, you know, various Puranas, um, on Jainism, on Buddhism, on the Pancharatra, the, the Vaishnava Tantra tradition, um, and impacts on Himalayan art and architecture. And so just, you know, various ways that these texts have, have had influence um, down to the present, really. Um, and then I kind of wrap it up. So yeah, like I said, the, the latter half of the book is uh, a rather long edition and, and detailed translation of this one source, Kriyakala Gunotra, that, um, you know, that, that seems to preserve the earliest account of the Garuda Tantras. So that's, yeah, that's basically the structure. Um, before we dive a little bit into um, the content, if you had wanted to say a word about methodology you mentioned in passing. Yeah, sure. Um, so the methodology, I mean, it depends on exactly, you know, which which part of the book we're talking about. So well, I mean, yeah, um, actually, if we yeah. can contextualize for a broader audience, maybe, you yeah, know, yeah. What do, uh, manuscripts, like, what are you talking about? What's the state? What's the issue? What, what, what manuscripts, like, what, what's going on there? Yeah, so a handwritten text, um, you know, there's something, the estimates are that there's like 10 million manuscripts, handwritten books that uh, reach the present. And there was probably tens of millions of others that don't don't reach the present. Um, and this is referring to Sanskrit manuscripts. There's many more in other languages, of course. So India, in pre-modern times, before the printing press and all of this reaches India, it was this probably the most prolific literary culture on the planet. I mean, there was there was like orders of magnitude more reading and writing going on in India than anywhere else in the world, including like, you know, all of Greek, Greek and Latin literature is much smaller than the corpus of Sanskrit literature. So it's just this enormous body of writings, of knowledge um, on every imaginable topic. And so these manuscripts are the best way to learn about texts in Sanskrit that haven't been heavily studied. Um, and that's, frankly, most Sanskrit texts have not been well studied and they haven't been printed in editions. You know, we, we have maybe five or 10,000 texts that have been printed in editions, but, but there's so many more than that, that that are only existing in manuscripts that are held in these archives. So one of the best archives, the one that I use the most is in Kathmandu because the, the higher elevation of Nepal has um, means like it's a cooler climate and it's less humid. And so manuscripts tended to survive longer. So, you know, there's of course millions of manuscripts in India too, but some of the, the oldest texts um, have died out in India, but survive in these, uh, these manuscripts from further to the North. And so you get a bunch of manuscripts and then what, what do you do with them? Okay. So yeah, get, get copies of the manuscripts. Uh, first I ordered like, you know, copies of the microfilm. These are black and white, pretty legible, uh, but it's nice to work off of color. There's certain details when you're reading the text that, okay, you know, is that this letter is that, that letter. So I went and I photographed the manuscripts uh, at the national archives in Kathmandu um, with a, you know, a, a digital, digital camera and then worked off those color photographs mostly. Um, occasionally something was was more clear in the black and white so it was nice to have both um, but yeah you know like I take those photographs um, I make a pdf of the entire text you know of those photographs I make a, a table of contents to that pdf so like you know this chapter starts on this uh, leaf of the palm leaf manuscript uh, so that I can jump around in the text that way and then, you know, I have it open on the top of my screen and then I have a text file open on the bottom and I just start typing. And so it's really difficult to start out because one doesn't know the script very well. It's, you know, it's one, it's handwriting. So it's a lot more difficult to read than, uh, than printed text. Um, and then two, it's just, you know, it's, it's an older script. There's, there's not really guides for, you know, you know, my, my knowledge of Devanagari certainly helped for some of the younger manuscripts, but for the, the oldest one, which was written about 850 years ago, uh, the, the script was more archaic. So it just took a lot of time to 
um, to figure out because this this isn't a text that has been printed. So I can't look and say, oh, this is saying that. You know, I'm just you know totally alone with the, the manuscript and and trying to uh, to read it. But over time, you know, over the months of of doing this every day. Um, I did become very familiar with uh, the handwriting, and so I can I can read it just as quickly as reading a printed text at this point for um, you know for those manuscripts that I used. So you've got your file with all of this information that you've deciphered, yes. and then what? Yeah. So um, and then you know you're reckoning with different manuscripts because for the Kriyakalagunotra we have. In Nepal, there's like six um, main manuscripts that have the whole text. They're more or less complete. Uh, but then there are also six or seven others uh, in India, mainly from Kashmir, some from Rajasthan, maybe one from Gujarat. Um, and these got carried off into different libraries. So some of those I got copies from Paris or from London. Uh, but, you know, so I, 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 the first step is really to gather all copies of all the manuscripts so that I have have it all there. And then I'm just going through and being like, okay, I'm trying to make sense of the text. And there's this difference here. Sometimes the differences are trivial. It's like they spell something different, but you can still recognize the word. Other times, all of the manuscripts say something that doesn't seem intelligible. And so I think about it for a long time. And then I go read other text, And, you know, I search through digital text files of, of, you know, thousands of other texts that people have typed in to try to find parallels. And so working that way, I can often amend the text. So this is this is a word we use when the scholar comes up with a, a different reading than what the manuscripts say, but but which has a rationale behind it, which can explain what the manuscripts say. So, you know, sometimes it's very simple and you know right away what the correct reading should be and how the error came about. But other times it's more speculative. And then, you know, you have to kind of mark it as a conjecture that not really sure what the text should say here, but but maybe it should say this. And so, you know, we have extensive notes that that go along with it to um, leave a record of our decision. So, uh, you know, that's that's a methodological thing about this edition of the Sanskrit text is I keep a record of, of everything every manuscript says. And so the reader can, if, if they're reading it, they can refer down and see what the variants are and they can decide Slober made the right decision here or Slober didn't make the right decision here because they can kind of look over my shoulder at, at the, the choices that I made and the rationale that I give. This reminds me of the, um, well, well, so much of what I do, but the, the Mahabharata's critical edition project, or really the Ramayana or the, the, or the, yeah. the critically edited Puranas. It's, it's um, the, the stuff that was left out is gold because oftentimes you will, you will think, wow, uh, I, that um, vignette, that, um, that story that Pakyana is like, that's the Rosetta Stone for understanding these two episodes. And so, you know, it, you have the option, you know, you, 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 you do the best you can, you, you yeah. justify your decisions, and then you leave, um, you leave uh, breadcrumbs for posterity <laughs> as you see fit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I and mean, people have some even very senior scholars have this misconception about critical editions that, that, you know, that there's like this mechanical method that you follow that you, you know, you use to arrive at the final word on a text. And so that's totally not the way it works there. There is no final word. The, any edition um, is a hypothesis, a critical edition where you're listing all of those variants is a hypothesis with evidence to back it up. So, um, so yeah, anyone can come along at a later point and make improvements, um, or you know, see what I've done and and agree with it. So, it's just pres pre preserving all the all the evidence for people to look at. Yeah. So you've got your um, you've got your edition that you've agreed that you're going to use for your work, and and then what's next step, or what was the next step for your particular book? Yeah, well, really, that took <laughs> that took probably three quarters of those ten years. Was was we're doing the textual work. Oh, I believe you. You're 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 a braver man than I am. <laughs> and, <laughs> In and that regard. Know, so, but after preparing that, you know, the the next step for me was contextualizing it. So, you know, I had been doing this all along because as I'm reading this text, I want to be reading it in context of what are other Sanskrit texts saying, and you know, what's up with the, with Garuda being in this this context. Um, so the contextualization was happening all along, but, but I 
you know, I don't didn't write it up until after having done the textual work because, um, you know, that's the textual work is really the 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 solid base uh, on on which all those those other contextualizations are are founded. Um, so you know, there's a lot that went into this book. Um, another thing, you know, you may not expect was that I had to learn quite a lot about um, modern scientific understandings. You know, in this the study of toxicology and herpetology, behavior of snakes, and you know what what do modern doctors recommend that you do during a snake bite? And you know how does antivenom work? And why are people so dismissive of traditional medicine? And so you know I, I read a lot of scientific journal articles and. I was, you know, it, it's, I, I try to kind of strike a balance between being very informed about the science, but not letting it make me dismissive of the, this medieval medical system. Um, so I, there's a whole lot of scholars, there's a whole lot of scholarship, there's a whole lot of scientists and doctors that are extremely dismissive of anything that's not modern medicine. They're like, you know, everything that came before was absolute nonsense. It wasn't based on evidence. So that sort of attitude is what prevented this book from being written until, until I got to it, because there was just not any sense that there might be something interesting or valuable there. Um, so. And yet there's, um, I mean, there's, uh, and yet uh, I know a number of Ayurvedic practitioners and yet there is um, uh, great utility in terms of track record and healing with various paradigms that might be considered more holistic or that that sort of have a model of the human being that is trans-empirical. I mean, there are dimensions that are sukshma, however you want to think of it. Um, and there, there are so many individuals who, whether out of folly or desperation or wisdom, will not gain the results they're looking for through a, a modern Western medical paradigm and gain right. fantastic results elsewhere. And of course, there are a lot of charlatans and a lot of people who are deluded and everything in between. But nevertheless, um, these, right. these systems of medicine have survived for centuries, not because they're complete madness. Well, that couldn't be the case. Right. So, you know, that's the critical thing is that everything in between that, you know, certain uh, too many people think of this issue of different systems of medicine as an either or that it, it, it's you know, you, you either believe in modern medicine or you don't, you know, and like, it's all, uh, I've said this before on this podcast, uh, it's all about the both and for all things Indic, especially Saskia narrative, it's all about the both and, but anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, one, one point in favor of this traditional medicine for snake bite is uh, on the herbal remedies side, there have been scientific studies that have taken, you know, these herbs into their lab. They've made extracts of them, injected it into um, to lab rats, and also injected the snake venom. And they've shown, you know, without a doubt, that that some of these herbal remedies do have amazingly strong anti-venom properties. That it can, you know, snake venom is really strong stuff. Like it can kill you within minutes if it's if it's a, a bad enough bite. Um, it can totally destroy your tissues. Um, you know, people lose limbs, like it's really strong stuff, but so are certain herbal medicines. And so they've confirmed this in lab studies. And there's been a proliferation of this since I wrote the book, even I had a student that, that sort of looked into what's been done since. And there's just been dozens and dozens of, um, of evaluations of, of herbal medicines that, you know, typically not drawn from text. These scientists are, are choosing which ones to evaluate um, based on folk medicine, uh, but, but sometimes those two overlap. And so there's a certain plant that, that the text that I work on, uh, say, use this plant for, it's called palasha in Sanskrit. Uh, they say use this for viper bite, you know, for a particular type of viper. Um, and that one I found there, there was a study done and it's, it's remarkable as an antivenom. So, but we're still in this sort of paradigm that the, the scientists doing these studies aren't really being heard by the broader medical community uh, because we're in this paradigm that says antivenom, like that's, that's made by, you know, this technique that they've been using since the 1800s, but, um, you know, they, they milk the venom from the snake, they inject it into a horse, 
and then they take the horse's blood and they purify out the, the antibodies that the horse creates to counteract the, the snake venom. Um, so that type of anti-venom is what is still rules the day, like all the world health literature is saying, you know, traditional medicine is just a waste of time. Like anti-venom anti is the only way to, to deal with this issue. Um, but anti-venom comes with its own problems. So yeah, I don't wanna go too off track here, but um, you know, anti-venom can be very allergenic and um, it's not always appropriately used. It's not always used in a, in a clinic that is well enough equipped. So anyway, there, I think that there's, there's a case to be made that some traditional forms of medicine, not all of it, of course, some traditional forms of medicine actually work and might actually hold better potential for non-allergenic treatments of snake bite. Uh, there's not a lot of sympathy for that in the, the global health. Well, uh, the, the, the fact is that we have more evidence that we know what to do with, but you have to separate the wheat and the chaff. We've got thousands, tens of thousands, in some cases with some ailments, millions of people who are treated in mm -hmm. Ayurvedic or various paradigms mm -hmm. um, that don't require any sort of belief or um, sleight of hand where they'll, they'll give it a shot and they'll gain the results. And, and so it's, it's, a, it's, it's, um, it's when evidence is threatening to our worldview, whether in the scientific or political or religious, it's when evidence is threatening to one's the scaffolding in one's mind, the worldview mm -hmm. that, you know, it's sidelined sometimes to be charitable as a defense mechanism or, or in the interest of, 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 of following a paradigm. And, and, and sometimes it's just too difficult to, when they discovered the Indus Valley civilization a century ago, they, they just deduced or assumed that it must be an, uh, an offshoot of Mesopotamia because how could right. such a thing exist? <laughs> how could such a thing exist in, um, in South Asia? And so this, it's just, clearly we all have biases. Every civilization does every, every paradigm does. And, um, Without question, there uh, there's no shortage of studies on the efficacy of various paradigms, including ancient Indic forms of medicine or holistic medicine. But I I'm not surprised um, uh, I'm not surprised at what you say in terms of it it threatens a particular paradigm worldview power structure, and so it's it's challenging to to use, you know you have to take it take that medicine with a grain of salt, so to speak. Listen, what what do you um, what do you hope folks most take away from this work? Yeah, well, I feel like there are four main contributions that it makes. I mean, one is just the Garuda Tantras exist because before this book, there really like there was a couple a couple scholars that, that had referred to them like with a paragraph or a page, but really like you know didn't say much. They said they're they're basically lost. So a lot of them have, have been lost, but they exist. Um, they existed and a lot of compendia were written on the basis of them, uh, such as the scriptural compendia, the Kriya Kalagranotra, um, that had, preserves a lot of fascinating materials. So, you know, these are referred to by so many other areas of Sanskrit literature. There's like intellectuals referring to them, poets, philosophers, um, you know, fiction writers, bhakti poets, shamans, yogis, they're all talking about the Garuda Tantras, but like people just like, what is this? Like they're referring to Garuda. I'm like, what does that mean? You know, something having to do with snake bite. So, so I feel like that's one of the big, biggest contributions of the book is just like, here it is. This is, this is what it is. This is what it was. Um, and it's, it's something to be aware of because there, there was that lack of awareness, that ignorance before. Um, yeah, I mean, also just the fact that Garuda is not minor in these texts and in many other contexts, that he was he was a pretty important god in the Veda. He was identified with the sun and the sun, you know, with Agni. And, uh, you know, this is like major stuff for the, for the Vedic religion. Um, so not a minor god, not only the Mount of Vishnu, um, very influential. Uh, you know, even just like looking at the news this morning, I, I see this, you know, report about Indonesia and the United States and a bunch of other countries doing these military exercises, and they're calling it the Super Garuda Shield, like that's happening right now. So I mean, the, the, the influence is clearly there all over Asia um, of this of this god. And so um, 
we we have to stop doing the knee jerk thing and just like you know categorizing a deity as as one thing because Garuda uh, was was so much more. Um, other takeaways from the book: mantras are definitely not meaningless or irrational. Um, they may be irrational in uh, in your worldview, in your in one's modern worldview, but they're not irrational to the people that use far 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 from it there's there is um yeah yeah full of meaning um you know so this is this this chapter on the vipati mantra where i get into the nuts and bolts of of what these mantras mean and um so many layers of meaning so many complementary interlocking layers that are that are used in in those rituals so you know, a lot of scholars before just were like mantras are meaningless or mantras are bird songs, you know, or, you know, it's just like some unintelligible mumbo jumbo. Definitely not the case. So, um, you know, that that's something I want to drive home with this book. Um, and then, yeah, just as we've been talking about, like, I, I want people to take away that we should be more open minded. That doesn't mean changing what we do. You know, it doesn't mean you don't go to the hospital when you get bitten by a snake. I think people should be safe and do what they need to do. Um, but like intellectually speaking, we can be curious about what other people have done in the past and, and what some people still do to this day. Um, why do they do it? How might it work or how might it not work? Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of interesting ways that these texts were accurate. Uh, I mean, there's ways that they, obviously there's sort of plenty of ways that they were inaccurate, but there's, there's also things that they knew that um, a lot of people, a lot of doctors still don't really fully understand today about how the venom works in the body. Um, I'll give an example of that if, if we have time. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, so um, one of the things in the text to describe how the venom goes through these different tissues in the body. Um, it, it starts in the skin. It's easiest to cure when it's in the skin. Uh, if you get it right away, very easy to counteract the venom. But over time, it goes deeper into the tissues, into the blood, into the muscles, into the, the bone marrow, finally. And so once it settles in the bone marrow, they say it's incurable. So this is remarkably detailed um, kind of physiological description of how venom progresses through the body. And, you know, I found that looking into this, this is basically how the really informed scientists understand the, the action of anti-venom is that it only works if the venom is freely circulating in the blood. If you wait too long to go to the doctor and get anti-venom treatment, it's not going to be very effective because the, the venom already settles into the tissues. So it's pretty much exactly the way, you know, broadly speaking, it's pretty much the way that they described this over a thousand years ago. So I just continue to be astounded at, um, at some of these insights that doctors had with far fewer, you know, far less technology and, uh, you know, sophisticated tools that we have today, that they really got some things very right. Well, it, it really seems to me, and I, I, this is an idea that comes up relatively frequently in teaching contexts, um, in conversations. It, it seems to my mind um, a sort of a glaring conceit mm. that uh, pre-moderns uh, were unthinking. Or I mean, look at the. I mean, uh, listen. In in the human experience, there are always going to be people who are extraordinarily. Um, good at scrutinizing, picking up our ideas, critically thinking, figuring out how something works, whether that's, yeah. uh, whether that's a chariot or whether that's a human body, whether it's, it's building a temple. Uh, this would have always been the case. Uh, yeah. there, there, there's no, there's no reason whatsoever to question whether or not the ancients were capable of critical thinking and practical application of knowledge. I think what trips people up is the code switching between mm. spiritual or, or 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 sort of sukshma modes versus stula modes, and I mm. think folks take that code switching as evidence of the inability to think straight. Mm. And I think you know an Ayurvedic doctor, a naturopath, or whomever, you've got to cut if you need an if you need an antibiotic or if you need a band aid or you need gauze, then that's what you're going to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think. I, 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 part of the reason why I arrived at this is because I know a number of practitioners who are fully capable of treating um, a gross problem on a gross level 
And I'll use an example. This hits home for me because in the last uh, couple of years, I've had more health issues than I've had in my whole life combined. Mm. Four or five relatively, um, you know, it, it, issues have cropped up and it was instinctive to me. I'm like, this, this can't be the case. This, these, these are cropping. They can't be a case. There's a stroke of bad luck or whatever. Mm. There's got to be something in the physiology, I don't know enough about physiology. Yet. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm, I'm I'm a bit of, of a rebel of someone of South Asian descent in that I didn't study medicine or engineering. <laughs> anyhow, um, um, and it yeah, was only very that there was something deeper going th- on. Th- it, it was it was abundantly clear to me both in terms of what I was feeling in my body, but also to my rational mind that these things can't just crop up out of nowhere, and they seem unrelated, but they can't be because I haven't had any of these issues before. They're all cropping up within 12 to 18 months. I go to an Ayurvedic doctor, highly skilled Ayurvedic doctor, um, uh, also highly skilled in, in, in you know regular Western medicine. And within two minutes, he points to the syndrome that is the underlying cause of all of this. And if you Google it, there is even a great Mayo Clinic article on this. It's not that allopathic medicine is not aware of this. It's that folks aren't always good at thinking holistically or pattern recognition, right? Mm -hmm. So folks get, and the smarter we get, and the more we study, the more in a crevice we live, right? Mm -hmm. And so two minutes, it's like, this is the syndrome, this, this, this. And he even alluded to two other issues that I didn't even mention to him because I didn't want to overburden him. He's like, you're going to have this, you're going to have this probably. I'm like, yep, because he was able to see a broader picture. Yeah. So that's not to say that that's not to say that there isn't a whole lot of, you know, dogma, superstition, and God knows what in a variety of religious traditions and texts and paradigms. But I couldn't agree with you more that um, that that we need to consciously overcome the conceit that other modes of medicine or anything before you know, um, 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 a certain century in European culture was capable of yeah, rational thought, right? Absolutely. And also just the lumping together, like, you know, any biomedical doctor is going to be able to make that diagnosis. No, you know, like, like, like you're saying, a lot of them are not seeing the bigger picture, which isn't to say that none of them would, because, you know, some might be really spot on and present when they're, you know, talking to you and, uh, evaluating your symptoms and some wouldn't. So, you know, you, you can't just say this whole system is wrong or this whole system is right. Yeah. There's the individual doctors that have their, their talents that absolutely um, may be able to treat you or, or not. Absolutely. Um, is there, um, let's see, were there any, uh, were there any other food groups that should be on the buffet? Um, is there anything else about the, uh, the book or your, uh, your journey that you'd like to share? Um, yeah, another food group poison, because sometimes poison was used as a medicine, very, very dangerous, uh, very interesting. But I think, you know, we're, we're probably getting a little over time. So I could, uh, leave that I, I'm, I'm perfectly, I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I've got the time. I don't have a, I don't have a, a, a commitment in the next hour. So I'm okay. And if folks are bored, which they won't be, they can always <laughs> fast forward. It's a podcast. So go for it. Oh, yeah. Okay. So These early texts that I edited um, refer to using poisons, plant poisons, medicinally, um, both to counteract snake venom in some cases and just as a general tonic or to heal other health conditions. Um, They handle it fairly cautiously, you know, by the standards of a thousand years ago. They say don't use it in these conditions for people that are very young or very old. And they say you have to do a test for what's basically an allergic reaction, you, you have the person hold a little bit of the plant uh, venom in their hand and see how their body reacts to it. And then they start very slowly by giving these minute amounts um, and, you know, claim very, very grand benefits. I mean, I think a lot of the claims are just way over the top, like, oh, you'll live for 300 years and still look like you're 16. Um, I don't believe that, but, you know, maybe some of well, the it's audience- Ar- It's Artifada, right? It's hyperbole. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I think one has to be really careful with this sort of thing. You know, it has to be stated that this wouldn't work for all types of poison, even taking minute amounts, because some poisons build up over time in the body. And so one doesn't want to dabble with this um, without truly understanding it. 
but it's not as off the wall as it might first appear, because if you think about it, you could compare to modern pharmacology. There's a lot of pharmaceutical drugs that doctors prescribe that are essentially poisons. I think of warfarin for one, um, brand, marketed as coumarin. It's like uh, used as a blood thinner to prevent blood clots for people that have had a stroke. Um, this is was started as a rat poison, like it literally is a poison. And so sometimes older people that I've talked to joke about it, but you know, it, it's literally a poison that's used medicinally in modern medicine. So one has to know what one's doing and get the dosage right and you know, not take a poison that builds up in the body. But but in principle, this idea is not as off the wall as it may appear at first glance. So if one comes into it with an open mind, one can sort of see the logic of, uh, of how it might have worked. Fascinating. You know, I'd like to, I'd like to um, touch on a couple of things you mentioned at the outset about your journey and your interests in how you got into this field of research and, and writing this book. Has your perspective changed since you were in middle school about magic? <laughs> um, first of all, magic in terms of, um, uh, you know, a magician, uh, a magician as an illusionist versus a magician as, for lack of a better word, an occultist. You know, yeah. um, has your has your perspective changed, I wonder, in that journey? And also, um, when you say magic or when you say, you know, considering some of these um, references or practices as magical, I'm not going to ask you to define that because that's uh, that's a ridiculous thing to do. But I, but I wonder if that's do you mean is that does that roughly equate um, the supernatural? Is that what you mean yes, by magic? That's what I was going to say. That and that is how I would define it. If you're going to put me on the spot to define no, it, no, no, I, I wouldn't put you on the spot. <laughs> no, no, but that's exactly what I was going to say. Is supernatural that that it's maybe it's claiming to work supernaturally, or at least it um, the way that it works is is not. Um, doesn't seem to be based on the laws of nature. So that's that's what I mean by magic. But um, yeah, the, the line between magic and religion is very blurry. And in the West, that idea of magic has tended to be used to disparage traditions like, you know, magic as opposed to religion, which is... You well, know, folks or, don't call the Eucharist magic, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, but I, I would, you know, not draw a fine line in the sand there. Um, so if my perspective's changed... Um, Yes and no. I mean, I feel like I'm probably more careful and more skeptical than I was. You know, when I was 13 years old, I was I was more naive. I didn't believe everything at that point, though. You know, I but but I had a stronger desire to believe than than I do now. Um, so you know, I've kind of found the the middle point of neither believing nor disbelieving that. Um, I would like it if supernatural things were were real and I've had experiences that I can't explain but I'm not a believer you know I'm not going to be out there saying people should believe this and I'm not you know sure that that my experiences were supernatural I just don't know how else to explain them so I feel like that kind of in between is a comfortable place for me and I feel like more people should be able to find that place in between that you're not stuck into belief or disbelief well it seems to my mind ironically as a more objective mode of inquiry mm. where one isn't tethered by what one expects to find or belief mm. where one has a, an, an open you know a more open mind in terms of what one is engaging in and having that sort of um that openness to possibility um, and in its absence, one has blind spots and one may miss certain things because one is looking at certain things in certain ways. And I think, I think the fact that you're more careful uh, and skeptical, oh, uh, to my mind, yay, the academy has done its job. I mean, because you know, <laughs> after three degrees, one would hope <laughs> on some level. <laughs> Having said that, and I return to this idea over and over again, when people are studying the human experience <laughs> and humans, uh, it, 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 clearly what's going on is more than meets the eye and one has to leave room for the possibility that we're more than uh bots made of flesh right like there's stuff going on right clearly um we so to, we need to be humble yeah because you know knowledge now is not what knowledge was a hundred years ago and it's not what knowledge will be a hundred years from now and so we need to be a little bit humble and understand that 
there may be things going on that we can't explain now that we'll be, we will be able to explain later. Right. And are there other types of knowledge? So, yeah. so, so are there, are there types of knowledge uh, that are derived uh, through different means, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so thank you for indulging. <laughs> and nonverbal, like, nonverbal knowledge too, because, you know, we tend to think everything that is knowledge can be written down, but there's certain ways of knowing and bodily ways of knowing that cannot be easily put into words um, that have to be transmitted through touch. And for example, or glance. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Michael Stuber on his fascinating OUP 2017 publication, Early Tantric Medicine, Snakebite Mantras and Healing in the Garuda Tantras. Until next time, keep well, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, and uh, keep contemplating the mysteries of medicine. Take care.